All right. Good afternoon, everyone. This is, of course, Keeping It Sports with M3. Doing things this week from my house in Freehold, New Jersey, because of some emergency situations not allowing me to head to uh, CSB. Hopefully, everything is all right there. But hey, still going to, you know keep a positive vibe on things and not let that get me down as far as talking about, ranting about, whatever's going on in the world of sports that may be on my mind this week. Hope everything's going well for you all on this Monday, the 13th day of June, almost you know, halfway through the month. A lot going on with, of course, uh, now, the Stanley Cup final beginning on Wednesday. Uh, baseball were in the heat of uh, their summer, you know, third of the way through now. <coughs> Still have that cough, which hopefully that's not going to be a big distraction, big problem throughout this. And, of course, uh, there's uh, the NBA Finals, which is where I want to start today. And, you know, we're... In the same place we were this time last week. A dead heat, deadlock at a tie in the series with the two sides splitting uh, games three and four up in uh, Boston. Still have not gotten one game decided by single figures, single digits in uh, this series, but uh, still a lot of... Uh, excitement still a lot of drama coming from a series where every game is decided by double figures in the fourth quarter the Celtics still haven't figured out how to shut down these runs that the Warriors go on in the third quarter they're at plus 40 um, in the fourth in the third quarter throughout this series but you know, they were able to uh, blow out the Warriors in the fourth quarter of uh, Game 3 behind a uh, collective attack. Now, and a lot of it, it you know, is based on the fact that the Warriors were not getting true consistency from a second option. I mean, Steph Curry's been the best player in this series. And if... The Warriors are to win the championship. He's going to be the MVP going away. But the Celtics and their two wins have gotten a collective effort from everybody. Now, Brown has probably been their most consistent scorer throughout uh, this series. But in wins, you've gotten uh, good things from Tatum, Smart. Uh, Robert Williams has been great defensively the problem with Robert Williams is the fact that you don't know how he's going to be feeling physically on a given day because his body probably feels like this is the preseason with the fact that he's coming back from a meniscus tear and yeah it's been almost two months since then but he has not been able to put together consistent consecutive back-to-back uh, big performances. Now, his, probably his biggest contribution to Game 3 is the fact that 
these last two games, and now I say these last two games because it feels like what happened in game three blended into game four, he has made, helped make Draymond Green a non-factor. And whether it be his defense inside shutting down Draymond or Draymond you know, being mentally affected by that crowd up in Boston, which we've seen the Warriors go up against great crowds before, but that was a whole different animal with how they were chanting uh, F.U. Draymond, Draymond sucks all throughout the night. Maybe it was getting to him, the fact that it was getting to his family and having an emotional effect on uh, his family members of him that were there. But clearly, we have not seen the Draymond Green of Game 2 in these last two games. I mean, the guy has more fouls in this series than he has points. And Draymond Green's never been a big-time scorer. And the last couple of years, we've seen his scoring totals go down. But his biggest contribution has always been his ability to defend all five positions on the court, his passing, the fact that more times than not, especially late in games, you see him being the one that brings the ball up the court rather than Steph Curry when they go to that you know death lineup, as they call it, and uh, to set screens and um, help prevent Curry or Thompson face too many double teams, which at some point, at some point you figure Ime Odoku, whether he's trying to play head games with the Warriors or is you know, just being delusional or being stubborn, you'd figure that he would change up the game plan some way, somehow, and stop having Steph guarded by one guy uh, down the court. I mean, they're dropping back. They're letting Steph come right down the court. And an interesting stat that I heard this morning is when... He's fa- there have been 77 pick and rolls involving Steph Curry so far in this series. Only three times have they bum-rushed that, or as they call it, blitzed it, and either sent the second guy or caused contact on Curry before the pick and roll can even uh, be set up. Three times. You would think especially after his performance in Game 4, that maybe, I don't know, time to change things up. Because, you know, like a a pitcher in baseball, you can't consistently go with the fastball. You can't consistently show them the same thing over and over again. You've got to be able to change things up based on the circumstance, based on the situation. It cannot just be, you know, stubbornly stick to what got you here in the regular season because this is the finals. This is all the chips at the middle of the table here. A chance for you to set yourself above the rest when it comes to championships in NBA history. 
And as we've seen with teams, there's no guarantee that you're going to get back to as good a situation as you have here. Because you're playing a Warriors team that, while there's at least two Hall of Famers on that court, some would argue Draymond Green a third, even though he hasn't really played like a Hall of Famer in uh, this series. This Warrior team, you know, they're on the back half of their careers. You know, that that's why it's been so important over these last couple of years, the development of a Jordan Poole or bringing in an Andrew Wiggins, getting new young blood in there so that you're not always relying on Steph or Clay to carry things for you. You're not always um, having to rely on that old guard night after night during the regular season when you're playing back-to-backs because you want them fresh for these moments in the postseason. And then having that ability to you know, take some of the burden off of them has them prepared for these moments, has them prepared for when the chips are down that say, hey, no, I'm used to this. I've experienced this in the post, in the regular season, having this amount of game action or this kind of pressure put on me late game is nothing new to me. It's now you have to experience it for the first time in a, a postseason. But, you know, the, outside of Draymond Green, the Warriors don't look rattled. It's just there's been a lack of consistency. There, you've seen moments where Klay Thompson has played well. You've seen moments where Jordan Poole has played well. But the last couple of games, you've not seen those moments from Draymond Green. That's why, you know, late in the fourth quarter, I know emotionally it was probably hard for Steve Kerr. But basketball-wise, it was the correct move to pull Draymond Green off the court there for four minutes, and it allowed Golden State to go on that run. It allowed them to go on that run that essentially put Boston out of their misery on Friday night and retie this series up in what was an all-important Game 4. Now, what did help in that stretch is the fact that Jason Tatum was nowhere to be found. And that's the big conundrum for the Celtics in this series. The fact that the guy that, <coughs> excuse me, so many people have already labeled as a star or a superstar. So many people have said, oh, this is one of the you know, top 15, top 10 players in this sport has been a, a non-factor in the second halves of these games. You look at it, his second halves, 9 for 34. And less than 25% in these second halves of these games. And on top of that, in the fourth quarter, he disappears. In, the, in that stretch where the Warriors went on the 11-3 run, he was out there, but you wouldn't have known it because he was a, a complete non-factor. And somehow, some way, the Celtics 
need to get that out of Jason Tatum. Now, it's not going to harm him long term, but if the Celtics do lose this series, people are going to look at and and be critical of Tatum all off season long. Going to look at him and say that in the biggest of moments, he disappeared. He was nowhere to be found, was a non-factor for the Celtics when they needed him most. And, you know, as we head into game five tonight, now I mentioned before, all four games have been decided by double figures. Well, this tonight is the swing game. To me, if, you know, the, the Celtics win this ser- this game, they're winning the series on Thursday night in game six. The, if the Warriors win tonight, we're getting a game seven next Sunday night. And, you know, then the pressure is really on. But, like I said before, at some point, Ime Odoko, rather than sitting here and telling us how, oh, you should be up three games to one right now, let's face it, you could very easily be down three games to one. If not for the fact that the Warriors imploded in the fourth quarter of game one, and you had lights out three-point shooting from the likes of Al Horford, White, and Marcus Smart, you'd be sitting here with your season on the line. So rather than concerning yourselves with what could have happened and what you think you should be, how about make some adjustments? No, no, it, it's, I don't know if it's pride, if it's stubbornness, but it's never a bad thing to admit you're making a mistake or admit, hey, I got to change something up here. I got to do something that is in the best interest of my team for someone else on the Warriors to beat you. Whether it's Clay Thompson, who's who, who knows if we're ever going to see the old Clay Thompson consistently ever again. Whether it's Andrew Wiggins, who's had his moments in this postseason, but is clearly a third or fourth option at best for this team. Hell, whether you're putting the onus on Draymond Green, who, you know, he's been hearing it on social media all weekend long, and he can respond all he wants to the criticism, the chastising on his own podcast all he wants but the critics are not going to go away until he has a big game in these finals and the Warriors uh, win this series if they lose he's going to be looked at as the fall guy he's going to be looked at and said "Hmm, maybe his best days are truly behind him so at some point figure out how to get the ball out of Steph's hands, figure out how to calm him the hell down because he's averaging 34 in this series. He's shooting better than uh, 50% from the field um, throughout this. And like I said, it doesn't hurt to you know blitz their pick and roll. They've been doing that a lot. Some argue that they should be doing it a little bit more with how well it's been working in the <laughs> this series. Figure out a way to wake Jason Tatum up because you look at it, a 
there's been an interesting trend in this postseason for both of these teams. And, you know, something's got to give tonight. Because not only are the Celtics 8-3 and three on the road in this postseason, but they're 7-0 and oh after a loss. But the Warriors have been pretty much unstoppable at home throughout the postseason and have never lost a series under Steve Kerr in which they were tied up 2-2. So it's going to be fascinating to watch tonight the adjustments, uh, see if Draymond Green or Jason Tatum can get their heads out of their rear ends and be a factor late in these games. All right, a lot I want to get to uh, today, give you some thoughts on what was a big week for the Rams, along with some other interesting quarterback notes in the NFL. Of course, got to talk some baseball with us having the best two teams in the sport in this area right now, as well as another managerial firing. And, you know, write the eulogy on the 2000. 21 2022 New York Rangers. So, a lot for me to get to over the next mm, about 45 minutes or so here. Glad you could join me this week. So, at this time, please sit back, relax, help, put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. All right, welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. Hope you're all having a great day. I'll tell you who was having a great day this time last week. That would be, of course, future first ballot NFL Hall of Famer Aaron Donald, who, you know, it's it's funny how things work out because this time last week I'm talking about him as if Oh, he's about to retire. And that's the way it sounded if you listened to him on that, that podcast with uh, Brandon Marshall and uh, Pac-Man Jones uh, about 10 days ago. He was of the mindset that unless a new deal could be worked out with the, the Rams, that he was ready to move on. And even with what he has already done, He's going to walk into Canton someday as a Hall of Famer. But, no, clearly the itch is still there. Clearly the desire to be great is still there. Now, it does help that the Rams threw more money at him. You look at that new contract that he got. He was due $55 million over the next three seasons and now got a significant raise um, to the point where through the 2024 season, excuse me, he'll be making $95 million with $65 million guaranteed over the next two seasons, making him the highest paid non-quarterback in NFL history with an average annual salary of $31.6 million. And, you know, 
at the time when he signed his last deal, he, I believe he when he signed it, he was the highest paid uh, defensive player in NFL history. But since then, we've seen new contracts given out to the likes of Joey Bosa and TJ Watt, each of them making at least $27 million a year. And as great as they are, as great as their future is, they have not accomplished yet what Aaron Donald has. Aaron Donald, people talk about as a top 10 defensive player in the history of this sport. Not just the best currently, one of the best all time. And quite frankly, he should be compensated like so. But where the hell are the Rams getting all this cash from? Is it just the fact that they moved to L.A.? Or is it that they have been so wise and smart beyond anyone else's thinking that Lesney is able to structure these contracts so that they're able to keep everybody? Because you think about it, they just gave Matthew Stafford 60 more million dollars. They were able to rework Aaron Donald's deal. Jalen Ramsey's one of, if not the highest paid corners in the sport. And then a couple days later, they give Cooper Cup a brand new deal. They add three years, $80 million onto his contract. And now he's getting $110 million through the 2026 season, making him now the 11th wide receiver um, to earn more than $20 million annually. And you, you look at it with this deal, it lowered his uh, cap hit for next season from 18.6 to 17.8 million dollars now it's gonna jump up there um north of 23 million for the next four years but i'm sure they there's ways that they can rework that i mean this has just become one of the model franchises in this sport coming off of a championship this uh past season and you know People were concerned about this team with the fact that, oh, how are they going to, A, keep this group together with all the money that everyone's making, and B, the the fact that they do not have a first-round draft pick through 2024. Well, through at least then, they're going to have their best four players on the field. The only guy this offseason they were unable to retain was Von Miller. And you look at the contract he got from Buffalo, you can see why. But they were able to keep their core, their key pieces together. The only the only thing that's missing from this is what I believe is will be the eventual re-signing of Odell Beckham Jr. And yeah, he's going to miss a good portion of of next season due to the torn ACL, but you're going to be able to get him likely on a one-year deal. You'll likely get him back by, say, mid-November if everything goes well. And he was on his best behavior when he went there. I I give him a lot of credit. Without as much of a pain in the ass as he's been over the course of his career, you know, he became a valuable piece of that team the second that Robert Woods went down. You know, 
there was some concern how's he going to handle being a number three or wide receiver. But you know, before they even played a game, he became, rather than a luxury, an important piece of the puzzle there in uh, Los Angeles. And now with all of these moves, they are well-stocked and well-ready to go for another Super Bowl run here coming up for the 2022-2023 season. Now, one of their one of their big competitors in the, the NFC West is making a very questionable decision if you ask me. And that's the way that the 49ers are handling Debo Samuel. And it's not so much his contract situation. Because this time a year ago, we knew of Debo Samuel. We knew he was a very talented young receiver in this sport. But this past season, he exploded on the scene as a star in the second half of the year. The, the 49ers went from a mediocre 3-5 and five start to going 7-2 and two down the stretch and getting in as one of the last wildcard spots. And a lot of that is thanks to the way that Kyle Shanahan reworked Debo Samuel into that offense, making him a dual player, adding that second dimension to his game as a running back. But now you're seeing the reports over the weekend by the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport, that the Niners have told him he will not be used as a running back anymore. And I think that's just a big mistake because he gave your team a dimension that nobody else in the sport had. A wide receiver with running back ability in the backfield was as... Dominant a force in offensive force in the second half of the season as there was in the sport. And it gave your offense new life. Give your offense some, something that other teams over those last 10-11 games of your year were not able to plan for, were not able to fully get a grasp of and that you know as i said big key why they made the postseason last year and i i understand it from debo's point of view here because as we know in this sport running backs have a very short shell life running backs have a tendency to you know burn out very early in this sport whether it's just the wear and tear of the hits that they take, or as we've seen with some uh, guys, you know their knees just not able to handle that m- many, you know, runs up the middle, not able to handle that grind of go of being stopped running through the line of scrimmage. And that taking a toll on these guys. That's 
why a lot of them are retiring by the age of 31, 32 years old after great starts to their career. So I can understand his point of view, but this role, this change in scheme is what made him special, is what made him a important player and made him a difference maker for the 49ers as they went on their run to making the postseason. And he wants to get paid the way he's seeing some of these other receivers in the sport are getting paid. The way that Tyreek Hill's getting paid. The way that Devontae Adams is getting paid. Now, those two guys made some headlines uh, this week. And Tyreek Hill, you really have to wonder if he's on something or if he was getting paid to say this, or is just way too nice of a guy. Because his commentary about Tua Tonga Viola was way too over the top. Was just, you understand wanting to be a good teammate, you understand wanting to uh, express positivity or optimism about a teammate, but for him on his podcast last week to say that Tua is more accurate than Patrick Mahomes, who some are already arguing is a top 10 quarterback in the history of this sport, and we're barely a third of the way into Patrick's career. Come on. Like, Patrick Mahomes is an MVP caliber quarterback Every year of his career. He's won a Super Bowl. If he had a better offensive line. Probably could have two. He's going to be a candidate. For a Super Bowl. Every year he's able to stand upright. And at the very least. Be competitive in this sport. Tua. Is trying to hang on for dear life. As far as just being a starting quarterback. In this league. I mean, you look at the numbers. From this past year, pass of pass attempts of one to fifteen yards. Tua had a sixty-six percent completion percentage, while Patrick Mahomes had a sixty-nine percent completion percentage. Mahomes, though, had a hundred and two more attempts from uh, that short distance. Then you go even further into the numbers, and you see on pass attempts. Of 15 yards in the air or more, Mahomes was only 42%, while Tua was at 48%. The difference here is Tua had 53 less attempts from of that kind of distance than did Mahomes. And that would be like saying, oh, I'm a better three-point shooter than Steph Curry, and he went out there and shot 100 attempts. Well, I only went out there and shot three attempts and made all three of them. You can't let you know completion percentages fool you. You you have to really dig deep into the numbers and look at attempts there. You know, and listen, everybody is the most accurate quarterback in the world in practice or in 
OTAs, they call it practice for a reason. It's supposed to build up confidence, build up you getting used to doing a certain activity, certain way of doing things. But at the same time, now, we've seen plenty of guys suck in practice, and all of a sudden, they look like stars on Sunday, and at the same time, look great when they're just in shorts and a t-shirt, and play like trash when it really counts. And there were multiple times in the last two years where Tua was pulled late in the game for Ryan Fitzpatrick. He doesn't have that safety net anymore. He doesn't have Fitzmagic coming in to save the day uh, for him. Now he's got to do it all on his own. And it comes at a time where he's got a new head coach who didn't wasn't there for him being drafted, is wanting to build his own way, his own mentality down there in Miami. And with the Dolphins... Ability to make trades and move up in next year's draft class, which by all reports looks like a much deeper, much more talented quarterback group than what we saw this past year. Two is on the clock because if the Dolphins miss the postseason again this year and Tua doesn't play well or Tua's hurt for most of the season, they're going to move on. They're not going to look at giving him a contract extension, they're going to look for who is their next opportunity in the long line of guys to be the long-term answer that they've been searching for since Dan Marino retired. Now, as ridiculous as his statement sounded, you could at least understand where Devontae Adams is coming from when he was talking to pro football talk over the weekend and made a slight comparison between Aaron Rodgers, his former quarterback, and his now once again quarterback, Derek Carr. Derek Carr, who they were teammates together uh, about 10 years ago at Fresno State. And while on the surface it may sound... Uh, you're comparing Derek Carr to one of the greatest in the history of the sport. Now, Derek Carr's been a lifelong friend of his. Derek Carr is someone he clearly has a belief in. I don't think he would have signed a long-term extension with a team that had a quarterback that he didn't believe in. Now, at first, you know, when he talks about the comparison there, he said, quote, I mean, it's tough to compare. It's really apples and oranges there. I mean, it's just such a different ball game. Obviously, you have Aaron, who's cemented as one of the best quarterbacks ever to play. That's just like comparing me to Jerry Rice. It'd be tough to do that because Jerry put together what he's done, and it's undeniable respect from him. And me, I'm still going. There's still a lot I've got to do to be mentioned with Jerry, and I'm aware of that. And I think Derek's aware of that from the big picture. But I think his comparison was more so, you know, talent and ability-wise as far as arm strength, accuracy down the field, and the ability to make 
you know, clutch throws late in these games. I mean, we've seen plenty of times in the last couple of years Derek Carr be average in a game, and then late, when it really matters most, when he needs to make the big throw down the field, when they really need him to come up clutch, he does it. He's been coming through time and time again when tested to do so. No, people just don't give him as much credit and respect as he probably should be getting because of the fact that he's not had that deep playoff run. The, the one time that his team had a shot to make a deep playoff run, he got injured late in the year and missed the postseason, a season where he likely would have been the MVP of this league. So while as ridiculous as what Tyreek Hill said about Tua, you can at least understand and appreciate uh, what Devontae Adams is saying about Derek Carr. While he's not on Aaron Rodgers' level as far as accomplishments yet, or maybe won't even get there, the talent's definitely there to somewhat challenge that level. All right, going to take a break here, come back and talk baseball because, hey, it's an exciting time to be a New York baseball fan. And there was another manager casualty in this past week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. All right, welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Hopefully next week I'll be back in the studio rather than once again recording this from uh, my dining room. But hey, you know, in life you have to have the ability to adjust. In life you have to have the ability, what's uh, the old saying, make you know, chicken shit out of chicken salad or the other way around whatever it may be so you got to make the best of unforeseen situations as happened to be you know right when i was about to leave to go record the podcast this morning but i still thankfully had equipment at home to rant rave and uh discuss what's going on in the world of sports Plus, had to have a chance to talk about our New York Yankees today because, my God, they they are a juggernaut. Now, two months <laughs> into the season, excuse me, there's that damn cough again. But two months into the season doesn't guarantee you anything. Now, World Series and championships, playoff spots, they're not one on June 13th. But they've certainly built themselves a very good cushion here. They've certainly built themselves some leeway for, you would expect at some point, there to be some kind of cold streak, some kind of 
streak where they're playing average baseball because right now they're on pace to win 119 games. And I never thought we'd see the day where someone would pass the Mariners' flukish 116-win season from 2001 ever again. But now this Yankee team... They are figuring out new ways to win each and every single night. They're not just doing it offensively, you know, leading the league in home runs and run differential. But as I discussed last week, their pitching staff has been otherworldly good. And while there were some blips this past week, you had some dips in performance, especially by... The likes of Jameson Tyon, who was average over his two starts, or Garrett Cole, who had nothing on Thursday night and was very fortunate to get out of there without a loss. This team figures out new ways to win every night. I mean, Take, for example, Thursday night. Cole gets knocked out in the third inning, and you're thinking, wow, the Twins are going to finally win a series against the Yankees. A team that, no matter Who's on them? You change the names, the faces of that team, and still, Twins can't figure out the New York Yankees. But the Yankees figure out a way. The Yankees find a way to get the job done. And I'm a fair person here. Now, I'll criticize someone when they need to. I'll rip them and bash them when necessary. But at the same time, i got to give credit to... What has to be most people out there's least favorite New York Yankees, and I'm talking about Yankee fans, you know, outsiders, you know, the haters will say it's, oh, Judge or Stanton or Cole, you know, the guys who are making the big money or the guy who's playing like the best player in baseball in Aaron Judge. But Aaron Hicks and Joey Gallo have been quite frankly awful for this team so far this year. But they were instrumental and big key reasons why the Yankees were able to come back and win Thursday night. Gallo had a game-tying home run earlier to tie it at three. Then <laughs> when Cole got knocked out, he had another home run that began their rally there before the eventual game-tying homer by Aaron Hicks. And once they tied up the game with the fact that the Yankees had most of their quality of relievers rested and ready, you figured that they were going to find a way against the Minnesota Twins, who, quite frankly, don't have pitchers that can get the Yankees out on a consistent basis. And then the Yankees had a field day against the Cubs this weekend. Not so much Friday night, where it took 13 innings uh, before Trevino's walk-off single, which crazy to think about. He had a walk-off base hit on what would have been his father's birthday last month. And then on Friday, has a walk-off single on his son's fourth birthday. And we have to start looking up now the birthdays of Jose Trevino's family, just so we know when to expect more magical moments from someone wasn't even on this team a week before the season. Someone who no one expected 
anything out of. Remember, Ben Rorvik was supposed to be the starting catcher of this team, and now he's likely going to be iced down in AAA because of the way Trevino's playing and the how important Higashioka is to this pitching staff, and he finally got going yesterday, was you know kind of a uh, sub-storyline in what was the Matt Carpenter show when Carpenter wasn't even supposed to play yesterday. LeMahieu was supposed to play third, give Donaldson a day off, with Torres at second, but Torres had a stomach ailment, prevented him from playing. You put in Carpenter... And he was yesterday's hero. Every day, it's someone new. You know, they lose Stanton for a couple weeks. Didn't miss a beat. Chapman, Lewiska, and Green have gone down in this bullpen. And two out of the three, Chapman and Lewiska, were not pitching well before they got hurt anyway. But King and Holmes have stepped up and done the job as your eighth and ninth inning guys. So much so that <laughs> when Chapman comes back, Holmes is your closer. Unless he gets hurt or falls off the face of the earth, Clay Holmes, A, is going to make the all-star team, and he should be the Yankee closer until he's not. They don't owe Chapman any loyalty because he's going to be a free agent and probably gone after this year anyway, and he's going to have to deal with not being in the ninth inning, not being the closer of this team. It's going to be a tough pill for a guy that's saved close to 300 games in his career it's gonna be a tough pill for him to swallow but that's just the facts that's what's helping the yankees win right now and you look at it they've got a stranglehold on the al east for you know 60 games into this season I mean, they've built a Big lead for themselves over the Rays and the Blue Jays, although they're going to be playing those two teams over the next nine days. And if they can at least tread water in those and not let you know the Rays, especially who have six games coming up with the Yankees, eat a big chunk into that, they're going to be really doing well for themselves. Now it's going to hurt the. After today, their next off day is not until the Fourth of July, which why they keep having days off on these important holidays I'll never understand but they have an eight and a half game lead over the Rays nine over the Blue Jays and here's the one that's really the kicker because in the last month since the Boston Red Sox got hot ever since now Alex Cora decided to clean shave and uh, get rid of his uh, disgusting gray beard the Red Sox have been one of the better teams in baseball. They are on a 22-10 and 10 run in their last 32 games. You think, oh wow, really good. They've gotten, they've gotten themselves back in the mix. They're a wild card team as we speak right now. Problem is, they've gotten themselves back in the mix for a wild card, but in that time frame, they've actually dropped two games in the standings to the Yankees. That's how good the Yankees have been. The fact that the Red Sox have been one of the best teams in baseball and can't catch them, can't come within even single digits of them. I mean, it's just an amazing run that the Yankees have been on. And while it guarantees nothing, and they've still got a lot of tough tests ahead of them, you don't apologize for wins. You put those in the bank, and it, as I said, gives you some security 
for when there comes that little lull, that little dip that you think that they'll probably go on because they can't be this hot all year, can they? Now, this month has been, I'll tell you, a bad month to be someone named Joe as far as a manager in Major League Baseball. Because, I mean, if your name is Joe as a player, you're fine. You're, Joe, Joe Musgrove is, might win the Cy Young in the National League this year. But Joe's, as far as managers are concerned, oh, been a rough last 10 days. First, we saw Girardi get fired an undeserving firing, if you ask me, because it was a poorly constructed roster by Dave Dombrowski in the offseason. But last week, Joe Madden got fired. Remember, they got off to a great start this year. We're 10 games over 500 before losing 12 games in a row, eventually became a 14-game losing streak. And Phil Nevin's now going to be the interim manager for the rest of the season. What I found funny is that Joe Madden, on his way out, when discussing his firing with the, the media, while he said he wasn't surprised by his firing, because you know the way they collapsed, something had to change there, at the same time, he thought that they had become a little too reliant too dependent on analytics in that organization and which it's it's funny because joe when you were the manager of the rays your team was the one that began this analytics evolution that's gone on in the sport you're you guys are the ones that began the obnoxiousness of living breathing and dying with the analytics of Major League Baseball. That's why, you know, at least 27 out of 30 clubs in this sport view that nonsense as it's baseball's version of the Holy Grail, baseball's version of the Bible. So you can't really complain when you're the ones, <coughs> excuse me, that were the ones that initiated this. Because baseball is very much a copycat sport. We've seen it, whether it be Tony La Russa in the 80s, starting the bullpen revolution with uh, Dennis Eckersley going from a mediocre starter to being one of the great closers in the history of the sport. We've seen you know, teams make trades for legendary starting pitchers, whether it be the Mariners trading Randy Johnson in the 90s or the Cubs uh, letting Greg Maddox go to the Braves or the Montreal Expos never recovering from trading Pedro Martinez. There was the bullpen evolution again by the Kansas City Royals, which every team has tried to mimic and copy since 2015. And, of course, there was the analytics explosion over a decade ago and why we've seen so many more shifts than we saw 20 years ago at this time. But, thankfully, that's something that will be eliminated next year. Now, the Mets had a very good West Coast road trip. And I know you could look on paper and say, oh, 5-5 five and five on a 10-game trip, kind of treading water there. But... You know, West Coast trips can be tricky. 
Now, they struggled against uh, the Padres, but took care of business against uh, an Angels team that is falling apart before our very eyes and had a very quality split with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I say quality split because they lost the first two games where they didn't look like they deserved to be on the field with the Dodgers and then worked comebacks in the, the second two against the Dodger bullpen. And the Dodgers, they got their own concerns to worry about right now with losing Walker Bueller for the next six to eight weeks to a, a flexor strain. You just hope that doesn't result in a second Tommy John surgery for that kid because now there had to be something wrong with uh, Walker Bueller. The fact that first nine starts, he's looking like an all-star and then the last three, he couldn't get anybody out. His his ERA the last three starts was four times what it was in uh, the first nine and his whip was 30 uh, percentage points higher. But the Mets... Now, the, the bad part of them going 5-5 five and five on their West Coast trip is it's allowed their main competition in the National League East to get back in the mix of things. The, the Phillies, up until yesterday, were on fire after firing Joe Girardi. They had won nine in a row, eight since the firing of Girardi. And during this streak, their offense had gone on fire 40 points higher batting average compared to uh, the, the first 50 games of the season their pitching staff had lowered its ERA by a run in the, this nine game winning streak and they only made three errors now that part I got to see a lot more to believe that their defense is been improved especially when you're running out there the corner outfielders that they're doing on a weekly basis but they've they've gotten themselves back in the mix for a playoff spot I don't think they're going to be able to do enough to catch the Mets in the NL East because they're still nine games back but they've come within four and a half of the third wild card spot putting themselves in a position where no a month from now teams are not going to be able to just call them and view them as a seller at the trade deadline. Now, uh, 10 days ago, they were 12 and a half back in the division, seven back in for the third wild card spot. They've gotten themselves back within shouting distance of a, of a postseason spot. And hey, that's all you can really ask for. That if you can get in the postseason, you've got Wheeler and Nola healthy, ready to go for a three-game set and maybe get Bryce Harper back out in the outfield by then, they're as dangerous as any team in the National League. Now, they are beginning a three-game series at home tonight, and they're facing one of the best pitchers in baseball when they go up against Sandy Alcantara, a guy who's probably in the top three, four for the National League Cy Young conversation right now. So, We'll see if they're able to bounce back from yesterday's loss in what is facing one of the better pitchers in the sport. But as good as they've been, the Braves. The Braves have been a juggernaut for the last 11 games. 11-game winning streak have pulled themselves 
within five and a half games of the National League East standing. They're currently sitting in a wild card spot. And while, you know, pitching wise, they've done better. They are uh, they're getting on base more. A lot of this is been reliant upon on the resurgence of Ronald Acuna. And you figured it was going to take some time. You figured that he wasn't just going to be able to bounce back that quickly from his torn ACL of last year, especially because he played, what, five or six games in the minor leagues as a rehab assignment. They called him up about 10 days before uh, they were originally thinking of doing so. But that the month of May was essentially like a spring training for him. And now here, since the calendar flipped to June, he's been one of the best players in, in the sport, hitting almost 400 with a 737 slugging percentage. He's been right in the middle, one of the leading catalysts for this Braves hot streak. And with this winning streak and a win tonight, they tied the 2018 Astros for the longest winning streak in a season uh, by a defending world champion since the 1961 season, which was the beginning of what we know as the expansion era. So we'll see if either of these two teams can keep up their hot streaks, but they've at least put pressure, at least put some kind of, no, not immediate pressure, not completely knocking the Mets out of a postseason spot, but the Mets aren't going to be able to just walk along their merrily little way into the playoffs. They've got a they've got a tough schedule this week. I know the Brewers have struggled as of late, but they they're seemingly always in the mix of things. And then they're playing the Marlins for a four game set next weekend, in which they're going to see. Sandy Alcantara either on Saturday or Sunday. And as we know, the Marlins can run out there some pretty special young pitchers. So it's going to be an interesting test with them back at home this week after what was a solid West Coast trip. I'm going to take my last break of the podcast comeback and put a bow on the 2000. 21-2022 New York Rangers. Continue keeping it sports with... All right, only a few more minutes left here, but uh, of course had to close out with uh, some thoughts on the hockey because I've been more into it than I thought I was going to be. I've always said that hockey is kind of the fourth child for me when it comes to my rooting interest in sports. And it is, at times... No, hard to stay locked in when your team is not in the mix. I mean, football, it's very easy because, I mean, 
You got to be a nut if you don't love football. Uh, baseball has been my favorite sport. It was my first sport that I started watching when I was like six or seven years old. So that's always been the number one for me. Even basketball, even in the years where the New Jersey Nets before they went to Brooklyn were god-awful. I stayed in the mix because, you know, the, the intrigue, the storylines, you wanted to see uh, if what was viewed as the favorite could get knocked off. And there's always some kind of upset along the way that spoils things for the matchup that usually TNT or ABC wants for the NBA Finals. But hockey, I've been keeping my antennas up for. I've been paying close attention to what's uh, going on there. And it's funny, you know, sometimes things will happen. Now, I'll put disclaimers when I post the description for the podcast each week, such as, oh, this happened after I recorded the podcast. You know, like with Aaron Donald signing his new deal after last week talking about him like he was going to retire. Well, a couple hours after last week's podcast, the Avalanche clinched the Western Conference Final, clinched another appearance in uh, the Stanley Cup Final with a comeback victory up in Edmonton um, against the Oilers, trailing 3-1 after two periods. And, you know, now McDavid... People um, look at with the the Oilers and say, oh, McDavid, he could be uh, the next uh, Gretzky for them. He could be the guy to carry the day. Well, it doesn't matter how much offense you have. You need good goaltending. And it, quite frankly, it's a miracle that they made it to this point with uh, Smith as their goalie. Um, if they had had either Vagileski or Shesterkin for game four, they at least move on to a game five, at least have a shot. But it was a collapse of almost epic proportions for them, seemingly standing still there. And you know the the final nail of the co- in the coffin was uh, Artui uh, uh, Lekonen's. Uh, Game-winning goal in overtime. I hope I pronounced that name right. Uh, But the game-winner in overtime. And here's the problem the Avalanche now face. And I look at it and see it's the same problem the, the Lightning faced in this series against the Rangers. Too much time off. They are going to be the victims. (coughs) Excuse me. Of too much rest. Yeah, you get a chance to health-wise, hit the reset button. Make sure you got all your ducks in a row. Make sure everybody's healthy, full systems go. We'll see if the injuries that they have at goaltender are going to provide a a change in the starting lineup for them come uh, Wednesday night. But we saw it with the Lightning against the Rangers. They were very rusty in the first two games. It took them until really the end of the second period of game two, especially in Vasileski's case, uh, Vasileski, excuse me, 
to really get going, get the good feel of uh, this uh, series. And once he got going, the Rangers were dead. The Rangers were done. And the, the b biggest problem for the Rangers is the fact that they could not score outside of power play goals um, for the final four games. In the first two games, they had seven non-power play goals. In the final four games, they had two. And one of them, if memory serves me correctly, was with a sixth attacker on the ice late in the game. So now that their lack of scoring came back uh, to bite them. Plus, you look at the Rangers, they ran out of gas. And at some point, I don't care how young a roster that they have, playing 20 games in a 38 to 39 day span as they were is going to catch up to you. And so Starkin played great. There's no criticizing the way he played. You clearly have your goaltender for years to come. This is going to be one of the many faces of your franchise in the next decade. <coughs> but you got to get some scoring. You, they, they lacked aggressiveness in these final three games. I don't know whether it was they were tired or just the lightning caught new life. And what I'll always look back on in this series is the stupidity of Jacob Truba in Game Three. They, the Rangers, had all the momentum. That was a dead building in the middle of the second period there. And then Truba commits two penalties <coughs> to allow the Lightning two power play opportunities, one in the second, one in the third. And then when the, there was uh, the four-minute major penalty called on, on uh, uh, Kucherov, and he's in the box... A minute and a half into it, Truba commits a penalty that negates the Rangers' advantage, that allowed the Lightning to have a four-on-four -four, um, game there for a minute and a half. And by the time Truba got out of the box, the Rangers were not able to get the power play back going. Plus, you know, that, that group for the Lightning, they've been together for a while. Now, most of the key pieces that are there have not just been there for th these two title runs the last two years. They were there when they were last in the, the cup final seven years ago. They, they were there for the beginning of this back in 2015. This is a, a veteran-laced group that has been together for a long time, has been through, grew together, and went through the trials and tribulations it takes to become a champion together. Now, the Rangers are going to have every opportunity to do that same thing because a lot of their key pieces here are signed up. They're locked up for the next you know, four or five years here. You've got Shesterkin, uh locked up. He's going to be your goaltender. That's going to leave uh, you to letting uh, uh, Gorichek uh, go as a free agent. 
But you look at, you know, the, guys, Panarin, even though he was quiet in this round, he's uh, going to be there. Zabanajak, you've got him for several years to come. Kreider, this was only the first year of his contract extension. You've still got all of those young forwards on that team, although it does remain to be seen what Kapokako's future with this team is, especially after he was weirdly scratched on Saturday night, a healthy scratch, and it turned out to to bite them because they had one less forward and that they would be playing with 10 forwards by the second half of uh, the second period when Ryan Strom went down. And that's something that, that the Rangers are going to have to address because they, they only have $13 million in cap space and all four of their centers are free agents. Now, all... Not just Strom, but all of the guys that they acquired at the trade deadline. Um, Cop, uh, um, 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 Mate, Frank, uh, Frank uh, Verano. Those guys are all free agents at the end of this year. Unrestricted free agents. You're not going to be able to keep them all. Maybe one or two of the, those guys. You got to make a decision on Capocacco, which is going to be an interesting one because he was the number two overall pick in the draft just three years ago. And he didn't play like a number two overall pick these three years. There was injuries mixed in there, but over 157 uh, career games, He's only had 58 points. Now, some of that could be the fact that he's he had a lot of emerging stars around him. But still, you would expect more than that from a guy that you selected number two overall. And the comparisons were always going to be there with uh, Jack Hughes of the Devils being with the close proximity that those two play and that Hughes was taken ahead of him in that draft. The Devils, they locked up Jack earlier this year to a long-term extension. Remains to be seen if the Rangers want to do the same. And listen, as your resident Rangers hater here, there was a smile on my face when they lost on Saturday night because there's not necessarily... That one player on the Rangers I can't stand. It's just their fan base, quite frankly, annoys the living crap out of me. But it's hard to get too, too gleeful when my team hasn't been in the postseason mix for the last five years. But it's a painful pill to swallow today because you were so close. You were up 2-0 in this series. You led game three 2-0. You thought that you had the lightning dead. But they're champions for a reason. You have to completely kill them before you can say they're done. And now, well, you're going to be viewed as one of the favorites to win the cup next year with all the guys that are coming back with the way Shesterkin played. Now, it becomes even more difficult because you're not going to be surprising anyone. You're going to be on... <coughs> everyone's radar they're gonna be like oh we're playing the rangers tonight this is a big game and you've got to go through it all over again you've got to go through four rounds of the 
postseason all over again just to hold up Lord Stanley's Cup. And while this year was probably the most difficult that anyone's ever had to go through with the fact that they wanted to make sure they get the season done before the end of June so that they can get things back on regular schedule at the start of next year. Going through going through four rounds of playoffs is a grind. It's grueling. And there's no guarantees. Ten years ago, I was you know, <coughs> sitting here talking about my devils falling short to the Los Angeles Kings and thinking, oh, they got a shot to be back next year. You know, Marty's still pretty good. They're going to have most of the same group back. And they missed the playoffs the next year. Hell, they've made the playoffs one time since that year. So nothing's, as we've seen across the sports world, nothing is guaranteed. It hurts today, but in time, Ranger fans, you'll be able to sit back and appreciate this run you went on. You'll be able to sit back and look at this run and say, wow, what a fun ride that was. They gave us a great two months of hockey and something to really anticipate and look forward to in the years to come. And that, my friends was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, June 13th, 2022. Hope to be back in the real studio next week. Hope this cough goes away by then. But until then, everyone have a great week. Have a great night. Stay safe. Have fun with whatever you're doing. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. I don't want to hear you, I don't want to smell you, I'll leave.